I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll break down new coordinated action taken by the U.S. and its allies against China over its human rights abuses in Xinjiang. Plus, we'll review the new USTR, Catherine Tai's first days on the job. And we'll explain what drove Intel's decision to make a huge new investment in U.S. chip manufacturing. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. All right, we're back with a brand new episode of The Trade Guys. As we were discussing the run of show earlier, Scott said it's kind of like Groundhog Day, the issues that we're, that we're going to talk about, but hopefully we'll put a new twist on them because there have been some developments over the past week. Uh, I want to start with, I think, what some people see as the Biden administration turning a new leaf when it comes to China policy and also our allies turning a new leaf as well, uh, which is the the coordinated sanctions that the US, EU, newly independent UK and Canada imposed on China over human rights abuses in Xinjiang, an issue that we're all familiar with. You know, it's interesting that the move came right after the really tense meeting between Anthony Blinken and top Chinese diplomats in Alaska. And, you know, what's notable is that while the sanctions appear to be, I think, more symbolic than anything else, they are the first sanctions that the Biden administration has imposed after agreeing with the Trump administration that what's happening in Xinjiang is, is genocide. And it fits the Biden administration's promise to work with allies and coordinate when it comes to China. So, I mean, what do you guys make of it? Is, is this kind of turning the page and getting into a new chapter of the China playbook? Or is this kind of a one-off thing and it'll be much more difficult to see this kind of coordination on other issues in the future? Well, I don't think we know yet. Uh, It is interesting to see the degree of coordination, and I think that's a good sign. Uh, The sanctions, on the one hand, don't amount to much. They're principally on individuals, at least from the European Union. Having said that, this is the first time that the Europeans have done anything in this space since Tiananmen Square. So uh, it's it's quite remarkable, and uh, perhaps maybe it's maybe everybody's getting fed up with China. Uh, so that's that's notable. Whether or not they go further and and in in what direction is for me the the mystery that's yet to uh, to unveil itself. And while anybody can be frustrated with a partner uh, or a, uh, another entity like China, what you do about that in the long run is, is still a very difficult question. And so I, I need to wait to see more evidence. It's an interesting development. Not sure yet what it all will, will mean. I think we may be turning a corner. This is kind of interesting. I mean, the, the two important things are, are what you said, Jack, that it really is the Biden administration coordinating, which is, uh, I think, what they said they were going to do. And so they're actually, you know, doing what they said they were going to do, which is novel sometimes for governments. And I think it's a reflection of what they've also said, which is that human rights is important to this president and he's going to stand up for them. Past presidents have learned that the Chinese don't appreciate that. Um, and uh, to me, what's interesting about this episode today is that the, the vitriol of the Chinese response 
um, which so far has been primarily aimed at Europe, which I think is also interesting. But they immediately responded to European sanctions and sanctioned five members of the European Parliament and several other European officials, the result of which is it'll probably kill off the investment agreement that the EU negotiated. The European Parliament is not happy that five of their members were sanctioned. But the other, the, the latest development today is the Chinese have gone after uh, H&M, the Swedish uh, clothing retailer. And, uh, you know, the Communist Youth League put out a st- tweeted out or put out a statement about attacking the company. And, uh, you know, lots and lots of Chinese are talking and saying they're going to boycott uh, H&M. They're not going to buy their clothes anymore. One employee uh, announced that he was resigning in an act of patriotism to support the motherland against these uh, foreigners who are interfering in China's uh, internal affairs. China's done this before. You know, they did it with the Koreans um, after the, uh, the missile system and did it to, to Latte, the uh, Korean uh, department store, as I recall, and engineered a boycott. It's in the same vein as what the Chinese did to the Australians who attacked them on COVID. I think people are getting fed up with this. You know, I think people feel that this, this is not the way that normal nations behave, leaving aside what they're doing internally and whether it deserves sanctions, I think it does. But leaving that aside, that, you know, you don't respond to that by uh, sort of using the trading system and using economics uh, because you're having a political disagreement with something. So I think we're probably going to see more of it on both sides. We'll see more of it, more coordinated sanctions. Uh, it will probably be an effort by the Americans to bring uh, more countries into this. Uh, and internationalize it now that we're on kind of a roll. And I think the Chinese seem locked into a fairly uh, aggressive response. Yeah, I think you're right, Bill, about these sort of set piece responses. They all kind of look alike and sound alike and quack alike. So that's what we expect. My view, this will just harden American public opinion in its current very negative mode regarding China. So I, I just I can't yet imagine how this gets better anytime soon, but maybe it won't. I think the country the country with the most courage on this has been Canada, you know, because they've got the two Canadians in jail in China. So they've got, you know, there's some vulnerability there and they spent a lot of political capital trying to get them out. True. And I think for them to sign on to this, which was entirely consistent with, you know, with their policy and, and their tradition, it's courageous. It's not going to help those two guys, I don't think, in the short run. Definitely courage shown by the Canadians. I I noticed that there were a bunch of allies in Asia of the U.S. that were absent from this effort, right? The Japanese, Koreans, Australians, New Zealand. And so I'm kind of wondering where they are, why why they didn't participate, and, and what their role will be, what sets them apart from the U.S., the EU, the U.K., and Canada. Well, look, I'd give it time. And, and if I were Australia, I'd say, hey, look, I gave it the office. <laughs> I said, where you been? We've been at this for a while. And uh, they've and Australia has taken a lot of of, uh, of trade pain in terms of uh, things like barley exports and all the areas where China has has meddled in, in, in really extreme, I would characterize as extreme fashions. Well, and keep in mind, the, the Asian countries, uh, particularly the countries uh, in Southeast Asia, you know, they've got thousands of years of dealing with the, the large dragon to the north, and they've learned not to poke. Uh, and they've learned to walk this very fine line. Of, they don't want to be co-opted. They don't want to be uh, invaded, even, as, as has happened historically. But uh, they're also wary about being too aggressively independent. They probably took some comfort from Secretary Blinken's comments, I think, which he made today in, in uh, Brussels, which that we're not going to force countries to choose 
between the United States and China. I'm not sure that we could, even if we wanted to, but I think it was a welcome sign. It'll certainly be a welcome sign in, in, in Southeast Asia where they have to walk a, the line fairly carefully. I'm not surprised they've not joined in. Uh, I would think that maybe eventually Japan might. Japan's got its own issues with China. I think it wouldn't surprise me if New Zealand did too, but the, the small states on the border, I think uh, it, that's expecting a lot from them. Yeah, they've, they've hedged for a long time uh, between the United States and China, and that's probably the, the place that uh, is in their interest to be. Right. So they're in a more delicate position. I want to get back to something I think, Bill, that you alluded to before we moved on, which is how the situation with the EU and China has played out in the aftermath of all of this. So China immediately sanctioned European individuals, including members of parliament and diplomats, academics. And there's definitely chatter that China's response wasn't necessarily proportionate, you could say, and that it might put in jeopardy the investment agreement that they had struck with the Europeans. And it's interesting because I think the Europeans you know, at least on the podcast, we've said before that the Europeans, when it comes to China, have always been one or two steps behind where the United States are. And this, the Xinjiang sanctions, I think, were fairly like non-controversial decision, right? There's not much of a debate that what's happening in, in China and that part of China should be met with some penalty. But now it seems as though the situation might be spiraling a little bit and it, China's response might force the Europeans to harden their position in a way that they didn't necessarily intend to and jeopardize other parts of the relationship. I mean, do you think that's right? Do you think that how China has responded might end up hurting their interests in the long run? I do. They've been squandering their soft power for a few years. They had a real opportunity in the Trump administration to and, and try to take it, saying, we're the good guys, we support the multilateral system, and the Americans are the bad guys. And I think that was uh, getting some traction not here, but elsewhere, until they started acting like bad guys, you know, and when you start pushing around the Australians and, you know, bullying these other countries and doing what they've just done with the Europeans, you, you, you know, you squander the, the relatively small amount of goodwill they had engendered. I assume they did it because they think they have more leverage with Europe and that Europe is a softer target than we are right now. Uh, and that they think that maybe because they're not as far along in their thinking as we are on these issues, the Europeans will be easier to intimidate, which seems to be their their style. You know, it's it's very Trumpian, you know, <laughs> bully and int- intimidate. The European reaction, I think, probably was not what they expected. That's probably the case. And uh, of course, but as you point out, a couple of years, the pre-COVID era, she had a star turn at uh, Davos. He's unlikely to rep- replicate that performance in the near future. I think uh, it's a tougher act to buy at this point. Yeah. Okay. So we'll see how that develops, especially with regard to the EU and China and, and the agreement on investment, which I think a lot of people saw as China trying to drive a wedge or get, get a little bit tighter with the European Union at the tail end of the Trump administration. Coming back home, Catherine Tai, uh, sworn in as USTR recently, has done a flurry of phone calls. And, you know, we're not going to laundry list all of them now, but I think there are some clear themes that are emerging from all of them, right? How the trade agenda can help the fight against climate change, what to do about China, and kind of the big theme of renewing cooperation. I think that was arguably missing during 
the Trump administration, but I was left wanting for specifics, which is maybe naive of me, right? There was no announcement about the UK agreement, nothing specific about uh, complaints that have been raised with regard to Mexico and their implementation of the USMCA, nothing really concrete about China or climate, despite them being mentioned in basically every readout. So my question for both of you, having been in this game a lot longer than I have, do you see any action forcing events that might cause some decisions to be made for USTR coming up? And the line is that, you know, we're reviewing policy of the previous administration. I mean, how long do those reviews usually take, right? Are we stretching that excuse at this point? Yeah. I mean, I, I share your view. It was a, a whole series of polite, you know, how are you? Glad to get to know you. Let's all cooperate talks with very little substance. Um, I guess that's to be expected. And, and I think it, it's the, sort of the inevitable product of the pandemic. I mean, when, when Zelik got the job 20 years ago, immediately went on a world tour and met, you know, all the same, not the same people, but the same people in the same positions. He met them all personally. But I suspect the conversation was pretty much the same. You know, let's, let's work together. I, I don't think they're at the point yet of, of making commitments. But, you know, you can only keep that going for so long. Eventually, you've got to... Uh, to land someplace and, and explain what you're going to do. There are a couple of things coming up. I think the G7 trade ministers are meeting when, Scott, end of next week? I believe that's right, yes. And there will be some discussions there about moving issues forward. One of them is on uh, like a, which I thought was inter- an interesting idea for a, like a trade and technology forum that would be focused on on, on standard setting and common standard setting in, in, in the digital area, which I think would be a really smart thing for the G7 to do. But, you know, it'll be at that point, Catherine will have to say something. The other big one will be when Biden's uh, climate conference, April 22nd, I think, where uh, we'll see what what happens. But certainly, you know, the United States is going to be expected to come up with something there. And they've been clear that climate is going to be a big part of their trade policy. So I would expect some announcement on that. I'm a little surprised there wasn't she didn't tell the British more than she told them. I mean, that's not exactly a new issue. I, they must have been thinking about this since the election. Well, that's that's the one, to my mind, where the clock is ticking. Because if you want to do a UK-US trade agreement of any complexity, it's going to need to use the grant of TPA, which expires in April for practical purposes. So that's the one that's, that's running out of time. I remember uh, Senator Bob Bennett, a former senator from Utah, always said the president's honeymoon lasts until he submits his first budget. And uh, so I think uh, I'm inclined to give Ambassador Tai a honeymoon because, after all, unanimously confirmed by the Senate, uh, well regarded by everyone, including the counterparties in, in trade agreement, trade negotiations. Uh, I'm glad she's had a great start. And but but the these things are going to happen fast. There is some talk, uh, which I think is interesting, that you're right, that April is the deadli- deadline to notify Congress that you're signing an agreement in order to take advantage of the procedures and, and trade promotion authority. There's some talk that for the UK, they might not have to do that, that it'll be a widely popular agreement and will sail without the procedures. You know, that way that happened with Jordan. That's the only one. Uh, but maybe the UK is in that category. I mean, it's a little hard to say since we don't know what they have agreed to and we don't know what they haven't agreed to. My guess is that that's wildly over-optimistic. 
that uh, getting an agreement with UK is going to demand some rather significant concessions by somebody. Uh, and I don't think they'll all be by the British. And that if we make some, then you can, you know there's going to be people that are unhappy. Uh, plus, uh, my recollection of the Jordan Agreement is a little different than yours. What I would recall is that uh, Senator Phil Graham of Texas was so incensed by the, the lack of uh, decorum and process that he put a hold on the bill, which maintained in place until the events of September 11, 2001, where President Bush personally called him and asked him to lift the hold. And then it, at that point, it was passed quite easily without fast track. But it, it was going nowhere fast prior to that catastrophe. I didn't so, know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Senator Graham took it personal. So, I think the people that believe that they can do it without the fast track procedures are wrong. But uh, there's been some talk about that. It's probably talk that it's inevitable talk because nobody thinks they can finish the agreement between now and April 1st. That's more likely. <laughs> and so, you know, if you know you're not going to make the deadline, the next step is you, you would then explain why you don't need to make the deadline. Yes. You make up some tall tales about why it's really not necessary. So good luck to them on that. <laughs> Yeah, I would put the wool past the UK FTA without fast track in squarely in the wishful thinking category. We'll find out. Let's uh, move on to, I think, what I want to be our last topic of the day. And behind China, I think it's our second favorite topic to discuss, and that's semiconductors. So there's this announcement that Intel, they're going to invest $20 billion to build uh, new plants in Arizona, I believe. And they're also going to double down at the same time on using third-party chip-making partners to source some of its more advanced processors, right? So they're, they're making what I see as three bets, basically, right? They're betting that there's going to be enough growing demand or demand is going to continue to grow for semiconductors that it makes sense to build more of them. Uh, and that there will be demand for the chips that they're able to build. The second bet is that they'll be able to maintain their relationships with foreign chip makers, right? And then the third bet is that, you know, folks will be okay buying less advanced chips as long as they're able to definitely be able to, to purchase them, right? So there's like a demand crunch right now. What do you guys make of that? Do you think that those bets are smart ones to make? Well, look, I think the aggregate demand uh, estimate uh, I think the market agrees with that bet. I, I would note that the technology comparator index, the NASDAQ, is basically flat versus January 4th. So year-to-date, NASDAQ is flat. Year-to-date, Intel is up 20%. And so the market is is looking at the, the moves to expanding capacity for what probably the investor's sense is a growing aggregate demand for IT products, and they're they're rewarding it. So so I think I think that bet is right. I would note also that the partnership side of this is an indication that the that the idea of vertical integration in the IT hardware business is long gone, that there's specialization along the production chain, and that even a company as sophisticated as Intel, which used to be reasonably vertically integrated in silicon chip production, no longer is, and that's kind of the reality of today's world. Now, whether government policy will be able to take that into account is something we'll learn over time. But I think that's the story of the industry today versus what people might imagine it, it was 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the, the first assumption about uh, 
increasing demand is is spot on. I mean, we're seeing shortages, but if you look at how technology is evolving now, we're just going to be needing, I think, more and more chips. There'll be a chip in my coffee cup before I know it. Well, yes, to uh, to keep it warm. Yes, and tell me when to refill it because I can't figure it out on my own. But yeah, the, so the demand part's fine. Uh, it gets pr- pretty complicated to see the direction after that. I've got one of those cups from, um, it's actually it's a Downton Abbey cup with quotes from Lady Violet. Uh, and the quotes only show up when there's hot liquid in the in the cup. And if you drink it, then the quotes disappear. And it makes me think maybe it already does have a chip, along with my refrigerator that will tell me what I'm out of and need to buy when I go shopping. Anyway, I think that assumption is correct. And I think the assumption uh, that you don't need you know, the latest, highest end, most sophisticated chip for a lot of applications uh, is going to turn out to be a good assumption too. The higher end you get, the the, the smaller the chip or the more the more uh, uh, lines you've crammed onto it, the more complicated it is to produce, the more difficult it is to produce, and, and therefore the more expensive it is. Uh, there's a lot of applications where you don't need that. Uh, you don't need the latest and greatest. Uh, you can go with uh, uh, lots that are... You know, the state of the art or a generation or two behind state of the art. So I think that that's an assumption that, that will, will prove warranted too. I, I think the one that, that we need to probably think about some more, and I don't have a lot of useful thoughts about it, is how the government uh, sorts out both its relationship and, and how it attempts to influence the relationship with the foreign companies and the foreign fab plants. You know, there's several that are, are here or are talking about coming here. Samsung, I guess, has a facility here, and uh, TSMC is talking about building one in Arizona or Texas. We've been encouraging that. Uh, do we want to encourage uh, more of it? Is it going to do anything to encourage American companies directly to do what Intel is talking about doing, which is increasing their onshore investment? I don't know the government has sorted that out yet. That's one of the t- sectors that's being studied in via the president's EO, and that particular study is due, I think, July 17th. It's a 100-day study, so we won't take very long for us to understand what the government's policy in the sector is going to be. Yeah, and it's an industry that members of Congress love to talk about as saying that they want to spend more money to support. But to Scott's point, it kind of seems like Intel being willing to make this $20 billion investment with out significant government support, to my knowledge, and the market reacting positively to it would seem to suggest that the incentives might already be in place, that there's just so much demand right now. And the bottlenecks that companies are experiencing, unable to get chips, not being able to produce finished products is sufficient enough to encourage more investment here, right? It just befuddles the, the debate about government support. Well, look, we'll see what's needed. Look, no private company that is accountable to shareholders makes a $20 billion capital investment without very careful consideration. And I trust that the Intel executives went over this pretty thoroughly and they're pretty convinced of the secular demand in this, uh, in this business out into the future. So uh, I think it's, it's money well spent. And the, at some point, we'll have a clearer idea of what the government role in all this is. It may not be an investment. We'll find out. It is, though, you know, one of the messages, uh, commercial coming on here, read my column this week. Industrial policy is back, except we're calling it innovation policy. And the hook, um, as we've discussed before, is national security. It's not just about 
you know, competitiveness in the classic economic sense. It's about competitiveness in sectors that are essential to our security, a line that's getting increasingly blurred as time has gone on. But I think you're going to see probably a, a fairly aggressive government plan for this sector once their report comes out. Well, Jack, I think this means more shows about China and chips in the in, in the future. What I don't know what to say about that, but it's like the new fish and chips, except it's China and chips. With that outstanding joke, <laughs> probably a flop. We'll call it quits for this week. I think Scott, you're exactly right. This is these are two topics that aren't going to go away. If you want to read more about them, Bill's column. Make sure you're on our our mailing list, and we'll send you a copy of that. But otherwise, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.